Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer before we look to his word. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this morning, for this privilege of worship. God, you made us for this. And while we wandered away and rebelled against you, made our way to death, eternal separation from you, you did not abandon us, but you saved us by your great mercy, your kindness, your goodness at a great cost to yourself by giving us your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. God, as we look to your word this morning, teach us to know him better so that we may love him and serve him better as his witnesses to the world into which you sent us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning again. So we're in the Gospel of Mark. We are going to be in chapter 11 this morning. There we go. Um, Have you ever asked God for something and his answer wasn't what you expected or maybe not even not what you wanted? Anybody brave enough to share? When you ask God for something and he answered, but not in the way you expected or what, with what you wanted. Yes. Would you say what was? Shireen? So Shireen asked for a job that she really wanted, but God didn't give it to her. Uh, Daniel? Same Same thing. Yeah, there's usually job-related requests that God answers differently or uh, not gives us not what we wanted. I'm sure many of you have brought before God your prayers, your requests, your expectations, and God didn't answer you quite the way you wanted it. This morning, we're going to meet a crowd that came to Jesus with great expectations and uh, uh, and legitimate expectations and they actually had their needs met but not according to what they expected or what they wanted but beyond what they could have ever asked for or hoped for let's see what we can learn about how to respond to God when uh, when uh, our expectations are not met in ways that we expected or wanted we are in the last section of the gospel of Mark that extends from Chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 16. This last section, even though it's only six chapters, covers 40% of the gospel, and yet covers only uh, the span of a week in the life of our Lord. The last week of His first coming, uh, the, what we call the Holy Week or Passion Week, where, as we see in our passage this morning, He enters into Jerusalem, and on Friday He would be crucified and buried, and on Saturday he will remain buried and Sunday he will rise again. This week may be the, or not maybe it is, the most monumental week in all 
of history. Every day of this week counts. And this morning we're going to look at the first day where Sunday where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. There are many more events that took place on these days other than what I have listed. But these are the most important ones. On Monday he cleanses the temple. On Tuesday uh, there's extensive teaching. But there are also several attempts to entrap him. uh, To get him into trouble with the authorities or with the people. On Wednesday he's anointed as he would say for his death and for his burial. And there's great treachery by one of his own people. On Thursday, he eats with his disciples the last supper, which we now observe uh, as he has commanded. And then he goes to Gethsemane, where his heart is deeply troubled about what he faced. And there he will be betrayed. And the mockery of a trial will begin on Thursday night, will extend into Friday, and finally he's handed over to be crucified. He will hang on the cross from 9 a.m. through 3 p.m. on Friday. He will die. He'll be buried. And on Saturday, his Sabbath will be on the grave where he will rest, in the grave where he will rest. And on Sunday, he will be raised again from the dead, even as he had told his disciples several times. We know this day as Palm Sunday. Uh, we observe this event from the life of our Lord every year during Holy Week. Uh, we, we know its context as, the, as the, the Sunday before the Friday when our Lord was crucified. And the Sunday before the Sunday He was raised from the dead. However, this passage is far richer when we consider it in the context of the Gospel. Especially in Mark where Mark, having introduced Jesus as the one who is the Son of God, as the Messiah, uh, goes on to show how Jesus by His words and His works demonstrate that He is indeed that, that He is the Son of God. And He makes His way to Jerusalem and, and tells His disciples three times as to what would happen to Him in Jerusalem, that He would be handed over, He would suffer, He would die, He would be raised again from the dead, none of which registered with His disciples. Now on this day, Palm Sunday, which often in our, some of our traditions becomes uh, uh, the, the jolly happy event of the Passion Week where we wave palm branches, mostly children, but even adults, a time to celebrate, if you will. But when we look closer at this passage in its context, it raises some deeper questions. Why did he enter Jerusalem publicly acknowledging his Messiahship when, when until now he had asked his disciples and others to, to keep his identity secret. Uh, even when his powers revealed that he was indeed the one uh, who could do the works of God. Like when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he would order them to silence. But here he publicly declares that he is the Messiah. And he enters Jerusalem to the acclaim of the crowd, knowing very well that, that, that acclaim will turn into mockery and demands for his crucifixion by the time we get to the end of the week. He knows that the honor of Palm Sunday will turn into humiliation on Good Friday, but he also knows there will be the vindication of Easter Sunday. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the passage that we consider. And this, this, this entry is the beginning of the victory of God. A victory that would seem like sheer defeat to his enemies. To the crowd that acclaims him. And even to his disciples. But it's nevertheless God's victory accomplished through means we could have never imagined. Far beyond anything we could have asked or expected. 
So turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 1. We will look at this passage in two sections. The preparation for his entry into Jerusalem, which is the longer section, 1 to 7. And then his entry itself, which is, uh, we find in verses 8 through 11. Mark 11. So we read in verse 1, Now when he drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, uh, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Last Sunday at the healing of Bartimaeus, Jesus was just leaving Jericho, which was about a day's journey from uh, Jerusalem. Now they're only a couple of miles away. They are among the, the, the crowds of pilgrims headed toward Jerusalem for the Passover festival. The festival that celebrated God's great deliver of, deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians that he brought about through mighty acts of judgment upon the Egyptians. Israel was once again being oppressed by a foreign power and that in their own land. Uh, the, this was the time when there was a great fervor, an expectation that God would... Once again, deliver them from their oppressors. Uh, it, it ran high at this time of the year. Will God send them a deliverer? Will the Messiah come? Will He free them from the clutches of Rome and establish God's benevolent rule? He finds himself in Bethany. Bethany, as we know, is the home of his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Every several nights of this week, Jesus will withdraw from Jerusalem to Bethany, perhaps to stay with his friends. Uh, and we told that he approaches Bethphage. Bethphage is closer to Jerusalem than Bethany was. It's, it's known as the house of figs. That's what Bethphage means. And uh, uh, several occasions Jesus will use a fig tree or uh, illustrate from a fig tree uh, who he is and what he has come to do. So the moment of his arrival at Jerusalem was almost upon them and the expectations, the excitement was high, not just among the disciples, but all the crowd that was traveling along with him to Jerusalem. And they are at the Mount of Olives and the excitement is even more kindled because of the, the eschatological significance of the Mount of Olives. The prophet Zechariah had predicted that the Mount of Olives would be the place from where God will arise and deliver Jerusalem from all her enemies who waged war against her. We read in Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 and verse 9. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the Mount shall, be, shall move northward and the other half southward. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Has the Lord arrived? Will deliverance come for Israel with the arrival of the Jewish Messiah? There's great expectation. There is great excitement in the air as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. We read in verses 2 and 3, And Jesus said to them, the two disciples that he sent out, even as he had sent them two by two earlier on mission, he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt. Tied on, tied on which no one has ever sat until untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. See, Jesus designs his entry into Jerusalem as a public declaration that he was indeed the Messiah. He doesn't do it with words. 
but through symbolic action and acted out sermon, if you will, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others have done, his instructions to these two disciples indicate that he is in complete charge over the momentous events of the week that is before him, starting even here. He was no victim, but one who resolutely and authoritatively walked in the direction that the Father had set before him. He, he tells his disciples that as soon as these, they enter this unnamed village, they will find a, a colt. A colt could be the young one of several animals from elephant to horse to donkey. Mark doesn't tell us which one, but we know from the other gospels and more importantly from the Zechariah 9 passage that was read to us earlier that this was the colt of a donkey. The colt, we are told, is one on which no one has ever sat. In the Old Testament, uh, animals that were used for God's purposes, animals for sacrifices, uh, the bulls that uh, pulled the, the Ark of the Covenant, they were not used for common purposes. The Mishnah, the commentary of the rabbis on the scripture, said that no one could ride, ride on the king's mount. It's another indication that Jesus had indeed come as the king who was promised. Jesus anticipates that his disciples will be questioned while untying the colt by either the owners of the animal or by those who were present when they were doing the untying. And he instructs them uh, with something that seems simple but yet very profound. He says all that they need to say to the people who will question them, uh, for them to allow them to take the animal was to say that the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. Again, Jesus' authority is evident and acknowledged even by this unknown people in an unnamed village. He has the authority. The king has the authority to claim property for his service. At the same time, this claim says something about what kind of a lord he was. The one who had no place to lay his head, had no beast of his own to ride into Jerusalem. He had to borrow one. His humility is also evident in that unlike kings who took possession of property and kept it for themselves, he promises to return it immediately. And they went and found a colt tied at a door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. The event unfolds just as Jesus had indicated. His authority is evident in all that transpires. Jesus is in charge of all the details as he enters into Jerusalem to accomplish his mission of giving his life as a ransom for many. We are told in verse 7, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. There is no saddle because the animal has never been ridden before. Cloaks have to suffice for saddle. A Passover pilgrims to Jerusalem generally walked the whole way as they entered the city. And Jesus had walked everywhere so far in the gospel except when he was in a boat crossing the sea. But he will enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. His approach call, uh, draws our attention to several Old Testament passages. When Solomon was anointed uh, at his coronation, he will enter into Jerusalem drive, uh, riding on the mule of David. Jehu, when he was anointed at the instruction of Elijah, will enter Jerusalem riding on a mule. But most importantly, the passage that was read for us from Zechariah had predicted that God's Messiah, the son of David, would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. 
uh, Zechariah 9 9 rejoice greatly O daughter Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foe of a donkey there is an allusion even farther back to another promise found in the blessing of J Jacob for Judah in Genesis 49 Judah is a lion's cub from the prey my son you have gone up he stooped down he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him who dares rouse him the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he now publicly declares through his actions for the first time that he is indeed the Messiah. His procurement, procurement of this colt to ride into Jerusalem uh, is, is without a doubt a symbolic action uh, depicting that he has come in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and the crowd certainly, certainly recognizes his actions as marked uh, as marking the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that Messiah would come riding on a donkey. However, Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem as a conquering soldier riding on a war horse, but as a servant king. Identifying with the common people because this donkey was also a beast of burden, an animal of peace. He is indeed the king, but he was not the kind of king they expected but he was more of a king than they could have ever expected. Martin Luther writes, He sits not upon a proud steed, an animal of war, nor does he come in great pomp and power, but sitting upon an ass, an animal of peace, fit only for burden and labor and help to man. He indicates by this that he comes not to frighten man, nor to drive or crush him, but to help him and to carry his burden for man. We see the entry itself from verses 8 and following. Eight and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Uh, Jesus receives this red carpet welcome into Jerusalem. The cloaks that are thrown before him on the road indicate uh, the bestowal of honor upon him and acknowledging that he was indeed the king who had authority over them. Uh, John is the only gospel who mentions uh, palm branches. All the other three gospels speak of leafy branches. So maybe it was not a, green, a red carpet, but a green one. Uh, see, this event not only recalls Zechariah's prophecy and, and, and uh, Jacob's blessing, but it also recalled a very recent event, well, recent in comparison, uh, of something that had taken place 200 years before. Uh, at that time, Judah, Israel, had been under the oppression of the Seleucids. That's the dynasty that arose after uh, Alexander the Great, uh, uh, Syro-Grecan uh, dynasty. Uh, one of the rulers, especially Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, persecuted God's people and defiled the temple. And God raised up uh, these brothers, Judas Maccabeus and his brother Simon. Uh, Judas will defeat them and Simon will enter into Jerusalem to cleanse and rededicate the temple that Antiochus had defiled. And Simon Maccabeus was, in, uh, was, was welcomed into Jerusalem in something very similar with cloaks and, and uh, branches spread before him. Is that what our people were expecting as they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem that God had raised up another Simon Maccabeus to deliver them? 
from a different oppressor this time. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd sings the words of the Hallel Psalm, one of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 118, which was usually sung during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Passover. But here it is sung, welcoming Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. The crowd is convinced that he is the Messiah. They welcome him into the royal city. They expect him to drive out their hated oppressors who were occupying their land. Uh, their shout of acclamation is bookended with these hosannas, with the beatitudes interspersed between them. Verse 9 is from Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. That's what those words mean. Eventually they'll become words of praise, something very similar to hallelujah. But the meaning is save us, O Lord. And they repeatedly cry out to the one who's entering, riding on this donkey. Save us, O Lord. They, have, they trust that he is the one God had sent to save Jerusalem from Rome. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, he who comes in the name of the Lord is a messianic title. The crowd believes and acknowledges that Jesus is the one promised and sent by God of Israel for their deliverance. The deliverer that God had promised through Zechariah. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It's an expectation of the arrival and the reinstatement of the rule of David, their greatest king, their conquering hero, who had, de who had defeated all their enemies and brought peace to Israel. It was a cry of hope, a cry of expectation, especially during the time of the Passover for uh, the Messiah's kingdom to come and displace the oppressive regime. See, this is, uh, Mark just gives us uh, very simple phrases, but this is more pronounced in Matthew, Luke, and John, where Jesus is welcomed with not just a Hosanna, but Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes, and blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus, who had been rightly acknowledged as the son of David by Bartimaeus, now arrives in Jerusalem to the acclaim of the crowd that he had come to inaugurate David's kingdom. Later in the week, they will learn that he is far more, far greater than a son of David, that he is the Lord of David, and that his kingdom is far greater than any kingdom that David ruled over. Their shouts of acclamation were a plea for the Messiah to act, to deliver them from their enemies and, and set up their messianic kingdom. That was their expectation. There was no doubt concerning what they expected Jesus to do in Jerusalem. Everything they did, everything they said indicated they were receiving a king, a conquering hero. Uh, not a bunch of children parading around with palm branches waving. They were people who had heard Jesus' authoritative teaching. They had seen his works of power, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind men, something they believed only God could do. People who were tired under the oppressive Regime that had ruled over them, that was violent, that taxed them, and they needed this deliverance. Their expectations were legitimate. Whatever it was that they were expecting, Jesus will redefine what it meant for him to be the Messiah. He was indeed the promised one. He receives their acclamation. His actions, on the other hand, indicate that he is a very different Messiah from what they had expected. He was not the warrior king like David. He's the one who comes riding 
on a donkey. He was the one, the king, who had come not to crush his enemies but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was the king who had come proclaiming peace. Jerusalem will reject the peace that he offered and he will weep over the city that did not recognize the time of his, their visitation because their expectations blinded them to the truth of the one who had come to them. Not merely in the name of the Lord, but the Lord himself. The one who will establish a kingdom that he had already brought in by his very presence. Not just the kingdom of their ancestor David, but the kingdom of God that will extend to the ends of the earth. He will indeed save them, not from Rome, but from the devil, from death, from the oppressive master of all people, sin. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As the rightful Messiah and having been acclaimed by the crowds as such, when Jesus arrives at the temple, uh, one word, and, and the crowd certainly did, uh, expected him to plant his flag and lay his claim on uh, Jerusalem, on the temple as the son of David, who had come to establish his father's kingdom. But Jesus merely looks around and leaves the temple and Jerusalem for the night. It seems rather anticlimactic for a triumphal entry, don't you think? But Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. He is completely in charge of what will transpire during that week. He knew why he had come to Jerusalem. And after inspecting the temple, he leaves for Bethany for the night. He didn't come into Jerusalem as some gawking tourist that we walk. I don't want to say anything about tourists. Or, or, uh, or pious pilgrims, who, or a pious pilgrim who had come to the temple to offer a sacrifice. He had come as the Lord and God, as king. And he has assessed the state of the temple and he will return the next day to declare his judgment over the temple. And Mark already alludes to that. We are told it was already late. Already late for what? Already late in the day? Maybe so. Already late for Jesus because he had entered into a path that's going to lead straight to the cross? Maybe so. But maybe it is already late for the temple, as we will see in the next day, where the place to meet with God would no longer be the temple, but would be the one who, in whom the Lord himself had come, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, triumph and humility are uh, just as paradoxical in our world as it was on that Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem. The triumphant Messiah was also the humble servant who had come to give his life as a ransom for many. We find another paradox for the crowd uh, that their expectations while, while seemingly unmet in their understanding are met beyond anything they could have asked or expected. See, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, just as much as he affirmed Peter's confession that he was the Christ, he accepts the crowd's acclaim. He had come to save them. He had come not just in the name of the Lord, he was the Lord. Even as he told his disciples to answer those who would question them and uh, they would untie the colt. He had just as much declared three times to his disciples. He was the Messiah, but his mission was not what they expected. He did enter Jerusalem to deliver his people, but not in the way they expected. 
but in accordance with his father's mission for them, for him to suffer, to die, and be raised on the third day as a ransom for many. See, Mark had, had already revealed the identity of Jesus as the Messiah in the very first verse of the gospel. And Jesus had demonstrated all along in the first ten chapters by his words, by his works, that he was indeed the Messiah. But that identity had been kept secret by his own command and was common knowledge just among his disciples after Peter's confession. But his entry into Jerusalem makes his declaration public that he is indeed the Messiah. It's no longer a secret. He enters into Jerusalem as Zechariah prophesied. Endowed with salvation, mounted on a donkey. He was indeed the son of David as Bartimaeus cried out. And even though the kingdom had arrived when he came on the scene with his mission. As it was demonstrated in his power over evil spirits and disease and evil and even death. He will accomplish his Mission not by overthrowing Rome, but by going to the cross on the charge of blasphemy because he rightly affirmed who he indeed was, the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth and to the ends of the earth is given forever, whose kingdom will never end. Yet he will accomplish this mission in a way that the world cannot fathom. An accomplishment that was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. See, that, that paradox is evident right here in Jerusalem. The conquering king does not come striding on a war horse, but on a beast of burden. He came accompanied not by armed soldiers, but a ragtag bunch that will abandon him. He came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to take the seat of power, but to a cross, a cruel and humiliating instrument of death. However, it is through that humiliation, through his humility, that he will come into his exaltation. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him that the name which was above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess him as Lord to the glory of the Father. See, Jesus accomplished his work by the power of the cross. And today when we proclaim his work, we do it in a similar way. And not some triumphalistic fashion, but as those who are people of the cross, who suffer for the sake of his name. So that even through, his, through our suffering, for his name's sake, he is made known. And his purpose is accomplished through us. Martin Luther again writes, If Christ had entered in splendor like a king of earth, the appearance and the words would have been according to nature and reason, and would have seemed to the eye according to the words. But then there would have been no room for faith. He who believes in Christ must find riches in poverty, honor in dishonor, joy in sorrow, life in death, and hold fast to them in that faith which clings to the word and expects such things. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That, what, that is what it means to follow Jesus. To walk, to walk through that path of suffering knowing that there is glory that the Father has promised beyond that. So even as Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, bearing his shame, we too follow after him, knowing there is glory to come, but only through the cross. There's also the paradox of the crowd. 
The crowd is much like the disciples. They have rightly recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. But their expectation of his mission is completely displaced. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the Lord. In the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That was their expectation. They expected freedom from their oppressors. They expected an agent from God who would deliver them from their oppressors. They expected the establishment of God's final reign over Israel. All legitimate expectations for a sore oppressed people. And the crowd will turn on Jesus by the end of the week when they realize he wasn't the Messiah of their expectations. Who would crush their enemies. They had no time for what they perceived as another failed Messiah. The cries of Hosanna will turn into crucify him. Well, little did the crowd know that what they needed was not another Simon Maccabees who would deliver them from political oppress oppressors, but the Lord God himself in the person of his son who had come to deliver them from their true oppressors. Both of them and the Romans, sin and death and captivity to the devil. The Savior who had come would not deliver them by destroying their human enemies, uh, but delivering himself into their hands to be crushed in obedience to his Father's will as a ransom for many and because of his great love for all people lost, headed to death, not just Israel, but all nations. Hosanna, save us now. Right cry. But what they thought they needed saving from was not what he had come to save them from. Thanks be to God. He didn't meet their expectations. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, indeed, blessed is he. But thanks be to God that the one who has come not, is not just another delivering, delivering agent from God, but the Lord himself. Blessed is the coming kingdom of God, thanks, the kingdom of David, thanks be to God that the kingdom that he would inaugurate was not merely the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but to establish the reign of God to the ends of the earth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to New York City to everywhere else. How do we respond to this king? We too have expectations, we too have longings, we have deep desires for what God, we want God to do for us. How do we respond when, when our expectations are not met, when his answers are not what we expected or we want or even wanted? A few days ago, Laura and I visited one of our elderly members who's in a, a long-term care facility. I, I've visited her several times over the last year and a half. The very first time I saw her, she longed to be back home. Her deepest desire was to be back in their face, that face of the place of familiarity that she called home. Uh, but over the year and a half, that hasn't happened. And unless God does a miracle, she will not go back to her home. But every time I have visited her, except for the one time when she was admitted to the hospital for acute care, nothing in her demeanor would suggest that she was disappointed by her unmet expectations, uh, her deep desires not being fulfilled to be back home. Why? Because as she sang with us the last time we were with her, was that beautiful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Her expectations have been met far beyond anything uh, like going home. When peace like a river attendeth my flow, when sorrows like sea billows roll, though Satan should buffet through trials, those trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. 
because Jesus did not fulfill their expectations, because he did not stop at the exaltation of Palm Sunday, because he went on to the humiliation of Good Friday in expectation of the vindication of Easter Sunday, you and I and that dear lady in the nursing home can all sing it is well with my soul, no matter how our expectations are met or unmet in ways we wanted or didn't want. What God has done for us in Christ Jesus is beyond anything we could have asked for or hoped for. Hosanna. Hallelujah. It is well with our soul. Blessed is the Lord who has come. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our God, our King, Lord Jesus, in all its fullness. It is well. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, what you've done for us in Christ Jesus is beyond anything that could ever ask for or hope for. You have made us your own. Not only did you forgive us, but you have brought us into your family as your children. You indwell us through your spirit. You form us after your son so that when we see him, we shall be like him. There is no greater joy. God, there are all kinds of longings and expectations in this world of, of, that is in rebellion against you. But God, as we cry out to you, help us to trust you, knowing that uh, what you've done for us in Christ is far greater than any expectation that we may come up with. And whatever we need, you are able to provide, for you did not hesitate to give us your own son. How much more you will answer all things according to your goodwill, for your glory, and for our good. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.